The truth is that we will not just go back to business as usual soon. Our economies and societies will open slowly, cautiously, gradually. In other words, we will recover, but it will take time. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen setting out the long road to recovery in the European Parliament this week. We'll talk more in a second about how well prepared Europe is for that recovery and about the dangers of a second wave of COVID-19. And later, we'll hear from Timothy Garton-Ash, Professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford. It's a very dangerous moment, or there was a moment of opportunity. But what I would say is that I think since for about the last 10 years, we have seen strong disintegrative tendencies in the European Union. It's a fascinating interview about what he sees as the big dangers for Europe right now and the opportunities he also sees in this crisis and about new opinion polling on Europeans' priorities. But first, let's check in with this week's podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to a slightly modified podcast panel this week as Reem is at a socially distanced briefing at the Elysee Palace. Uh, but we're delighted to welcome Carmen Pound. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Andrew. Old friend of the podcast, a healthcare reporter for Politico, of course, but uh, soon heading to the US. So great to have you on uh, before you head over there. And in Berlin, Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Bonjour. <laughs> there you go. We managed to get a bit of French Can't influence in, in there. there. You know, yeah, good. There we go. Because we, we would not like to be accused of anti-French bias. Um, but uh, let's start, uh, Carmen, with a piece that you wrote, which is kind of the the topic of the moment is at least there in the background in just about everything that's happening with the coronavirus at the moment. Uh, and that's the question of the, the second wave. I mean, could you just summarise where we stand in terms of the prospects of a, of a second wave? I guess my question is, how can there not be a second wave, right, with all this uh, relaxation of, of lockdowns going on? Indeed. I mean, if, if previous pandemics are anything to go by, there will be multiple waves, not just one, uh, according to the head of the European uh, Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, who, who talked to me for that story. And there could be obviously many different things that could trigger it. Um, the relaxation of the lockdown um, is obviously the first one. Travelling, if we do get there, um, and if, uh, if countries start implementing some of the guidelines that the Commission put out yesterday, may also trigger a spike in infection and eventually a second wave. And, you know, there also, what has also been interesting is that there could also be some sort of like pockets of people that get infected that maybe were not, you know, obvious in the beginning of the pandemic. So the, there's the example of Singapore, who did very well um, in the early days of the outbreak in taking down the number of infection in the wider community. But then they overlooked the million or so of their migrant workers, many of them living in crowded dormitories. Um, who then, you know, go out to clean the street and, and do other such jobs that really expose them to the rest of the community. So then the outbreak moved there and they, they had to go into some sort of lockdown to make sure the interactions, again, between people were kept to the minimum. So that's also a potential factor also in Europe that could eventually, uh, you know, lead to a second wave. Well, in fact, in Germany, over the past week or so, we've seen a number of these outbreaks amongst um, Eastern Europeans who are working 
in Germany, uh, in agriculture, and in, in other fields where they end up basically living together in very uh, tight quarters. And uh, you've also seen this, for example, in uh, meatpacking plants in North Rhine-Westphalia. Uh, so this is something that I think the Germans as well are, are keeping a very close eye on at the moment. Yeah. Carmen, is there any any country or, or what, what's the kind of key to trying to keep this under control? You know, we hear a lot about the, the track and trace. Uh, you know, what do experts, the people you spoke to for your piece, say about the you know, the best ways to try and at least stop this spiking up too high, you know, try and keep it all under control? So the they are saying that every country has to be able to test people. That's very important. Then to be able to trace their contacts and make sure that um, they at least isolate themselves to be able to contain this as, as soon as possible. And the idea is to have a sort of like monitoring system in place that can actually sort of like raise the alarm that, for example, if you see a sudden spike of cases in a region or maybe in a workplace, then you would be able to contain that there before it reaches the wider community. So the idea would be not to, again, have to lock down a whole country or a whole region, but just the area that is most affected. And many of the things um, are still work in progress in many countries. Right, especially when there's no, uh, there's no end in sight, there's no vaccine in sight, and, and people are, are figuring out they're going to have to live with this for you know, a considerable period of time, which means you know, continuous lockdown is just not, not an option. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's just going to mean, uh, you know, what, what is your, what is your uh, appetite for risk and you know, right. how far are you willing to go? And what is worse, you know, letting the economy continue to implode or uh, risking people dying? Yeah, I mean, that is the choice that uh, people, that leaders face. And, um, you know, although it's our job uh, on this podcast to kind of analyse their decisions, occasionally critique them, um, you know, I don't envy them having to to make those decisions. Carmen, while we've got you here, uh, I wanted to talk about your home country of Romania. Uh, You know, some countries get a lot more attention than others. You know, how is Romania doing? We talked to you a couple of weeks ago about seasonal workers from Romania going to Germany and other places. But what about within Romania itself? They, so today is the last day of the state of emergency in Romania. Um, from tomorrow, there will be an easing of restriction, although that is being done under um, an uncertain um, legal framework, if we can call it like that. Um, but uh, because the government has agreed on the draft law too late, um, it looks like it's possible they won't have time to do all the procedures for the law to enter into force as early as tomorrow, so it could enter into force only on Monday, which means that legally for three days for the weekend, there might not be any restrictions in place in Romania, and it would be really up to people's behavior to to stay at home and to not to gather in crowds and things like that. Um, in terms of deaths, uh, Romania is doing you know, better, if we can call it like that, than than bigger Western European countries. Um, It just reached um, the threshold of about a thousand deaths two days ago. And it's, uh, I think, in around 15,000 cases um, reported of infections. It's still considered um, not great for the region if you compare it to other countries in the region, uh, maybe with similar populations. But so far, there hasn't been any major alarm. The the number of cases hasn't gone down. It's 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 um, daily. It's a bit of a plateau. So they are still quite cautious about how they're going to reopen. 
Mm. Why has it held up so well? Has it just been that the number of cases hasn't tested it so well? Or is that system kind of more durable than we imagine? One um, argument made by many is that uh, countries like Romania and others in the region who were aware of the vulnerability of their health system actually imposed the lockdown much earlier than countries in Western Europe. Um, there was a bit chaotic at the beginning uh, because the, the Romanian government decided to have obviously the first line hospitals, which are the infectious uh, diseases hospitals, but then also second line. So the hospitals that wouldn't necessarily deal with infectious diseases and in the first few days of, of this decision, um, some doctors and nurses in the so-called second-line hospitals um, quit uh, because they felt they weren't, you know, they weren't getting enough protective equipment. Uh, it was a very small number of people um, quitting at the time, but it was uh, it, it triggered quite a, an emotional reaction in the population. Um, and also, the the government had to change the management in some hospitals that were not doing well and to actually bring in military managers. So there were definitely some hiccups, but it looks like overall it was handled better than than could have been. Mm. Mm. Okay, maybe we'll switch topics. Will we talk leaks um, for a moment? Because Carmen, obviously in your in your job with us and you're a kind of veteran of the uh, of the Brussels scene. Um, you know, we uh, we receive many uh, leaked documents and tips and that kind of thing from uh, European officials. And we hear that the European Commission uh, is uh, declaring a kind of war on leaks. There's even talk of charges. Um, things seem to be getting very tense. What do you make of it? And do you have any sympathy at all with uh, the Commission? Yes and no. I can imagine that when you're about to make an announcement and then um, the press or parts of the press get it one or two days in advance and you read already a summary of most of the document um, two or three days in advance, it can be frustrating because obviously it steals your thunder. So I can understand that that's not pleasant. At the same time, there's always the debate about the level of transparency of the institutions, of the commission and of the council. And, you know, most of the time when you try to get some su substantive answers from from the spokesperson or the press officers, you get some very general statements, most of the time on background that you cannot, you know, quote per se um, on the record. Um, that also doesn't really give you substantive information about what you need. Yeah. Matt, you any sympathy for the war on leaks? Uh, no, really. Um, I, I think it reflects poorly on on the commission and particularly on von der Leyen, because these are the exact same kind of tactics you know, kind of a witch hunt uh, for leakers that we, we've seen recently in Washington. It never works. It always reflects badly on whatever government is trying to do it. It just creates a lot of bad blood. And, you know, at a time when you're seeing kind of press freedoms across parts of Europe being, you know, challenged in many ways, I, I just don't think it's the right signal for the commission to be threatening leakers and, and this sort of thing. I mean, and, and instead, they should just try, try to do a, a better job. And if you look at the way that they handled the entire China affair with the, with the op-ed from the ambassador in China and the, the situation that we previously wrote about with the disinformation report that was then 
altered, and um, you know that entire story was was driven by by leaks, obviously. And but the leaks, I don't think, were really the problem. The problem was that you know that they were effectively manipulating this report behind the scenes in order to please the Chinese. So well, that's a very uh, yeah. I mean that that's the, that is exactly the reading that, that most people drew from it. Of course, Matt, as it was, as they made very clear, there were two reports: one for internal consumption and one for external. Exactly. There's no, nothing to see here. <laughs> exactly. Move along. I just think, though, in general, that that this, you know, just if obviously nobody in a position of power like that uh, is, is happy when information is leaked. You know, this isn't always top secret information, or rarely is top secret information. Yeah. You know, that is going in to, the case of the European Commission, it's exactly, never top imperil the security of the European Union or something. So I, I, I think it just it just is uh, bad for the image because it also makes it look like they've got a lot to hide and. Um, you know, they, they can't just let their actions stand on them, on their merits. Yeah, I think also, you know, I, I would say even from their point of view, I mean, some of these leaks, shock horror, are quite deliberate attempts to, you know, launch trial balloons to put ideas out there and see how they go down. You know, they serve a, a pretty useful purpose for for the commission and, and for kind of any, you know, governing body, really. And so to to be talking in such terms, particularly use of the word charges. Um, well, you know, I, I, thought, I think yeah, I, th- I thought that was ridiculous. I thought that was really interesting uh, and and quite revealing in one of the emails that surfaced in the back and forth with the EAS on this uh, China report was that one of their um, public relations people was complaining in an email that uh, what Politico had reported was an unauthorized leak. Yeah. Uh, and that itself, you know, kind of yeah. oh, no, points yeah. to what you're saying is that, yeah. well, they do kind of put stuff yeah. out there. The authorized as as leaks they are authorized fine. Leaks, yeah. You know, really, by definition, yeah. a leak would be unauthorized. But uh, but they're trying to have it both ways. And it's just it's just not yeah. going to work. Yeah. Yeah. OK, there we go. Well, we tried our best uh, commission friends to uh, find some sympathy for you on that one. But um, it's a tough crowd. Let's put it that way. Um, Carmen, anything else you want to to mention before you go and we wish you all the very best in, in your new adventures in the US <laughs> yeah I need a lot of luck with that don't I <laughs> going where I'm going yeah, Matt will be down on you now for being anti-American there yeah uh, really what's going on <laughs> <laughs> her patriotism is not in question exactly an American husband and kid just the kid doesn't know you that he's American he will find out when he's a bit older um, okay. <laughs> the lucky boy yeah, he de- well, he definitely is. He has a Belgian and American passport. So he has both the EU and the US, which, uh, you know, like um, uh, for a Romanian-born mother, it's it's quite an achievement, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, listen, we'll let you go and, and you know, get on with, with wrapping up. Uh, but it's been great to have you on the podcast. Uh, we'll be sure to keep in touch. All the best, Carmen. Thank you so much, Andrew. And um, talking of... Um, Talking of youngsters, uh, we should say that Annabelle uh, had her baby the other day, a little boy, Thomas Patrick, I believe. And the the pictures, the baby pictures were sent as requested. Matt, were they, they, were they oh, cute enough for they your were standards? Amazing. They were amazing. Yeah. I mean, he's got yeah. this uh, very sharp, sharp look in his eye. Yeah. Uh, very, very skeptical. Very, it could be a you know a, a future journalist. I think. I think he's got the makings of a journalist already. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so Annabelle did say she would be listening during the late night feeds. So um, it's okay, Annabelle, if you're not. But if you are, congratulations uh, to you and your husband. And uh, we look forward to talking to you when you're back at work, whenever that may be. 
And now let's go straight to that interview with Professor Timothy Garton-Ash. Professor Garton-Ash, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, we're going to talk in a moment about the um, uh, opinion polling that you've uh, carried out as part of your Europe Stories project. But perhaps could you just start by telling us uh, what the Europe Stories project is uh, and what's its purpose? So this is a research project I lead at Oxford. Uh, the research team is mainly young Europeans. And the big thing it wants to find out is what the young Europeans actually want Europe to do. What do they value about Europe in general, meaning also its countries, its culture, its way of life, and specifically, what would they like the EU to do? Because I'm absolutely persuaded that, you know, if the EU is going to have a good future, it needs to know what the next generations of Europeans want it to do, and then actually deliver on those big priorities. And the two big ones, uh, which immediately have emerged, are climate change and jobs and social security. Right. And so I guess as part of um, of that research, um, you conducted this opinion polling across Europe at a very interesting time, just as uh, the coronavirus was spreading across the continent and countries were going into lockdown. Um, tell us a bit about the, the research, um, how you conducted it and um, what the most striking findings were. So uh, I spent a year with my team formulating a key set of questions to try and dig deeper into attitudes uh, initially on these two subjects, climate change and jobs and social security. And then we teamed up with the Bertelsmann Foundation's EU Opinions Project, which does a representative sample, big representative sample, more than 12,000 people across 27 EU member states and the UK, which is still in Europe, by the way. I've heard, I've heard that. <laughs> we didn't leave <laughs> right. Europe, right? <laughs> I, 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 I want to add. And the two really stunning findings from the poll, which by chance was conducted in March this year, so just as the whole of Europe was going into this unprecedented lockdown, shocker number one, 71% of all Europeans support the introduction of a universal basic income. That's an amazing finding. And by the way, across all age groups, I think it's the biggest figure I've seen for support for UBI. And it's backed up by 84% supporting a mandatory minimum wage. So the sense there is you're moving towards a, a more radical, more egalitarian, if you like, solutions. The other real shock, is that 53% of young Europeans think that authoritarian states are better equipped to tackle the climate crisis than democracies. What do you make of those two findings and can you reconcile them in some way? Do they, do they, do they deliver a common picture? Uh, so uh, what the two big findings have in common is radicalism. These are both very radical views. The first set, which is kind of enriched by the other questions around jobs and social security, is that there was already, because of the financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis, the perceived inequalities as a result of, quote-unquote, neoliberal economic policies, there was a strong desire for more redistribution, which I think we knew anyway. 
And I interpret this as having been catalyzed, quite dramatically catalyzed, by the coronavirus crisis. So the hope would be that that shows us a good way of coming out of the crisis, right? Now, the climate change stuff, and then we went on to ask a whole series of other questions about climate change, is more discouraging, because I then went back and talked to all these young Europeans, you know, our sort of focus group, and said, well, do, do some of you think that? And what emerges is it's not that they like Xi Jinping's China or Putin's Russia or Erdogan's Turkey. It's that democracy as they see it working, they think is incapable of delivering the solutions that are needed to prevent global warming. It's too slow, it's too cumbersome, and it's too captured by special interests. So how does Europe, how does the EU and how do governments um, respond you know, to those findings, do you think? How should they respond? So I think that's part of the larger question about how we come out of the coronavirus, isn't it? And, and the possibilities are very wide. I mean, they range from much more nationalism, more beggar-my-neighbour policies, more resort to authoritarian rule as already in Viktor Orban's Hungary and potentially in Poland. That's one outcome, and uh, in a context of a new American-Chinese Cold War. But the, the optimistic variant, the, op the chance of the crisis, is obviously that the EU and European governments both address those issues of redistribution and social justice in what they do to make an economic recovery and use the economic recovery as a transition to the Green New Deal, which is a stated EU priority anyway. Mm. If we move to that, just the moment that you, Europe finds itself in um, right now with the coronavirus, but also you know, other things that have been brewing, such as both Hungary and Poland uh, being under these Article 7 proceedings, basically accused by EU institutions of not upholding you know, the core values of the EU. Uh, we have other things out there, this recent German constitutional court ruling, you know, to an extent at least rebelling against the rule of the European Court of Justice. I mean, is Europe in the middle of a, of a perfect storm? How, how dangerous a moment does all of this, you know, combine to make? It's a very dangerous moment, although also a moment of opportunity. But what I would say is that I think since, for about the last 10 years, we have seen strong disintegrative tendencies in the European Union, particularly in the Eurozone crisis with the North-South divide, and then in the refugee crisis, which was both North-South and West-East. And this comes on top of those, and uh, worst case, deepens those divides. So that for me, the challenge of getting out of this uh, to the EU is particularly in two respects, beyond what I said already about, about shaping the economic recovery. Number one, to show that there is genuine solidarity between North and South European members of the Eurozone. Uh, if Germany and the Netherlands and Finland and Austria stop where they are today, 
I can assure you that in two years' time, Matteo Salvini or whoever the latest Italian populist it is, will be saying the North Europeans left us in the lurch in the Eurozone crisis, they left us in the lurch on the migration crisis, and now they've left us in the lurch on the coronavirus crisis, which nobody could say was in any way, shape or form our, our fault. Three strikes and you're right. So particularly in Italy, I think we have a huge danger of a South European backlash. I think German opinion is beginning to move on this. It's fascinating that the BDI, the Confederation of German Industry, just came out arguing for fiscal, more fiscal solidarity in the Eurozone. But that's, that's one absolutely crucial area. The other is, and, and as you know, I've written for 40 years about Central and Eastern Europe and the transition to democracy. Hungary is no longer a democracy. Liberal democracy in Hungary has been eroded over the last 10 years while Hungary was a member state of the EU. And frankly, the EU has done almost nothing to stop it. The money has gone on flowing into the coffers of Viktor Orban. Today, Hungary is a dictatorship. Really, you'd go that far? For the duration of the emergency powers, which Orban has given himself, which are without term and give him essentially the power to rule by decree, as a dictator does. Think about that. We have a dictatorship which is a member state of the EU. And the Kaczynskis in Poland are clearly trying to follow in his tracks. Some time ago, in the 1970s, Jean Monnet said, we can have a dictatorship somewhere in Europe, that's entirely possible, but you can't have a, a dictatorship in the European community. Well, now we do. And that's the other huge challenge to the European Union, to show that you cannot violate the basic standards of the European Union enshrined in Article 2 of its basic treaty without paying a price. But how, how can they do that? I mean, we can see with the whole Article 7 proceedings, it's just bogged down. There's no real appetite to, to deal with it. So, first of all, there is one thing that could happen tomorrow. The, the scandal within the scandal of this story is that the EPP continues to have Fidesz as effectively a member of the group in the European Parliament, as you very well know, although notion is suspended, right? And um, I, I, I just think it is an outrage that, that the, the main grouping of centre-right parties in Europe which actually have been the parties of the European project for decades and upholding European values, are tolerating the party of someone who's effectively a dictator in their midst. They should kick him out tomorrow. That's the first thing to happen. The EU institutionally, it is more difficult. But what I would say to you is that we, we always say the EU is a, a community of law. What is happening in Poland and Hungary threatens the legal order of the entire European Union. And the German Constitutional Court hasn't really helped. So I think it's absolutely existentially important for the EU to push back on the subject of law. Third thing the EU can do, connect the Europe of money to the Europe of values. Mm, which, again, we've seen a reluctance to. There's an attempt to do it, but we'll see whether it happens. I just wonder if when, when you look at, at what's happening at the moment, isn't the kind of natural conclusion of this that we, we do end up with, 
you know, you can call it a two-speed Europe, a Europe of concentric circles, but, you know, you end up with a kind of core EU and perhaps a broader, you know, free trade, something that goes back more to the, the common market and the EU as it currently exists, you know, with 27 countries, you know, its time may be up. I think that's, if I may say so, old thinking. You can, yeah. <laughs> the concentric circles or the two-speed idea. I mean, first of all, the image of two-speed assumes that you're going in the same direction, thus at different speeds. Well, European countries are now going in different directions. I think it's a different process that is happening. It is a weakening, uh, a, a gradual disintegration with many different elements in Europe going in different directions at different speeds. That's the danger. Uh, including the core, because after all, Italy is a founding state of the whole European project. And as we've just been saying, the tension now is notably between Italy and Northern Europe, Italy and Germany in particular. So in a sense, I think it's a much more existential challenge than would be just a two-speed or multi-speed Europe. Mm. What do you imagine as the kind of well actually let me ask a question which which I think you ask as part of your questionnaire on the on the Europe Stories website, which is uh, what's the thing that you would like the EU to have achieved by 2030? So on the website, EuropeanMoments.com, we've actually now have a facility where people can self-interview during the lockdown and tell us their best, worst formative European moments and answer this question. Interestingly. Quite a few people answer along the lines of, I'd like it to survive. <laughs> right? In other words, people see this danger of disintegration. But obviously, in order to survive, it has to make major reforms. And I would like to see a, an EU which is not obsessing about institutional reform, but is wholly focused on delivering the things that Europeans actually want. And an European Union which recognises that to be more flexible does not mean to be weaker. Actually, if you think about athletes, they're strong and they're flexible. And, that's, and the most successful political community in the entire history of our continent over more than 2,500 years was the Holy Roman Empire, precisely because it was both strong and flexible. Mm. Let me ask you just a couple more questions. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I did want to ask about Central and Eastern Europe in particular, because, uh, as you say, uh, you have you know focused on, on that region in particular uh, right throughout your career. How do you explain what's happened, particularly in, in Poland and Hungary, having, having observed the region at such uh, close quarters for so long? I've actually just written a postscript to the book I wrote about the 1989 revolutions, the Magic Lantern, trying to answer that question. And of course, it's complicated. But um, to put it at its simplest, we have seen for close to 40 years, something that one might call a liberal revolution, not just in Central and Eastern Europe, but in Europe and to some extent in the world. All historians know that after revolutions, you get the counter-revolution. And to put it in its simplest, this is the counter-revolution. This is the reaction which is um, strengthened by the mistakes we as liberals, and I say very deliberately, we made 
over the 30 years since 1989. We allowed far too much inequality to develop, not just in economic inequality, because economic inequality is not so extreme in these countries, but what I call inequality of attention respect, uh, cultural as well as economic inequality. Can you just explain that a bit more? A cult, you know, the, the inequality of respect. So the people who vote for law and justice in Poland or for Fidesz in Hungary, or by the way, who voted for Brexit or Trump or Marine Le Pen or, or the Alternative für Deutschland, it's not just they feel neglected economically. Above all, they feel there are these distant liberal metropolitan elites by whom they are totally ignored and disrespected. They don't even notice us. And, and, and that's as important, that inequality of attention and respect, uh, is as important as the economic inequality. And then along come the populists and say, we have heard you, we are listening to you. I, even though I'm a millionaire, Donald Trump or Nigel Farage, I speak your language, I am one of you. And not only am I going to give you economic handouts, but I'm going to give you symbolic attention and respect. And interestingly, the Polish politics, the Polish populists, Law and Justice Party, have a fascinating phrase. They talk about the redistribution of respect and the redistribution of dignity. And that's exactly, and if we as liberals are going to find better answers for these problems after coronavirus, we have to think seriously about the redistribution of dignity, which, by the way, has started in the coronavirus crisis, because suddenly we're all celebrating the poor paid nurses and care workers and essential workers, you know, who are risking their lives to save art. Professor Timothy Gartanash, thank you very much. A pleasure. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, so you never miss an episode. And we'd really appreciate if you could take a moment to rate us by clicking some stars and leaving a review. You can also reach us anytime at podcast.politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>